Aaron and I want to start with a really big, heartfelt first bite thank you. We have been so encouraged by your kind word, your messages, your glowing reviews of First Bite. This has been a labor of love for the last year and a half, and we we are grateful for y'all being on the First Bite journey with us and supporting us because we I mean, we work full time and this is this is a full time gig on top of it. And we do it with joy because we understand that the world of early intervention pediatrics needs evidence in it. So we sweet talked the folks with speechtherapypd.com. And as a thank you giveaway, we have come up with a, a, a free pod course subscription. So once we hit 130 iTunes written reviews, we're going to pull another name out of the hat, probably with the assistance of an ever so handsome goose and a bear. And that person will get a free PodCourse subscription. So over 175 hours of continuing ed plus 19 new continuing hours each month. And there's a new episode every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every other Thursday, and the short course, nine series long, all things ethics with Elise. And that's our way of giving back. So thank you. So please keep the reviews coming. We only have a few more to go, but once we hit 130, then we will pull that name out of a hat. Happy 2020. Thank you for joining us on the journey. And Seriously, y'all rock. Thank you. Hey, so by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCourse subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the number's 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hey there, listener. This is Dr. Dakota Sharp, audiologist, clinical assistant professor, and lifelong learner, inviting you to join me on an exciting new podcasting journey known as On the Ear. As you know, audiology is ever-evolving, so it's critical as professionals that we learn and grow as well. Every other Thursday, On the Ear will be interviewing a variety of clinicians and researchers spanning a wide range of hearing and communication topics. From pediatrics to geriatrics, cochlear implants to vestibular, speech to hearing, and everything in between, this podcast will provide exciting insights that you can use in your clinical practice. Each episode of On the Ear is available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs when you complete the accompanying pod course through speechtherapypd.com. Hi folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by speechtherapypd.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Culvertown, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation. So there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. 
Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts. To break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy, joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee Byway of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Okay, so today's guest I am totally geeking out about because tonight First Bite gets the privilege and honor of hosting Dr. Marion Russell OT and feeding to weaning extraordinaire. Y'all, my face hurts from smiling so hard, so I hope y'all can feel this. All right, so this feeding therapist guru hails from none other than the world's premier feeding tube clinic in Austria. Now, once upon a time, um, pre-goose and bear, uh, I dreamed about going to Austria and learning from them firsthand. But y'all, the babies happened and here we are seven years later. And it's still a dream that I haven't been able to chase down just yet. But you gotta love a good yet, right? So imagine my fangirl awe when I saw that she was the presenter for Feeding Matters this past January. I emailed her instantly and she is phenomenal. And I can't believe she said yes. And folks, guess what? She has relocated to the States and is actually in the process of raising awareness about the feeding tube dependency program and how you can participate in it from here. So can we get a collective round of applause and an evidence-based practice sigh of relief? Hooray! Okay. So Dr. Marion, thank you for coming on and hi, and welcome to America and Hi. <laughs> well, hello, and thank you so much for having me. <laughs> uh, okay, so I have like 400 different questions, and I'm, I know we have like to stick to like our like ascend questions, but also, one, how did you become an OT, and then how did you get into the world of feeding tube dependency, and then my gosh, what brought you to America? Can you well, start there? <laughs> that alone was still an hour, but I'm trying to keep it short. <laughs> to keep it short. Um, OT, kind of interesting. I came through it kind of the back door. So I have an undergrad in English literature, actually, and wanted to be an English professor. And then I was like, you know, nah, not for me. I want to work with people. And um, so I took, like, the passion for narrative and stories. And I was like, wow, you can meet them right here as an OT. So that kind of got me going and... Um, I just absolutely loved it, and this is like this is my home. This is where I need to be. And I've always wanted to work um, with individuals with eating disorders, and there just wasn't a lot of programs available. And then I started working in pediatrics, and it's like, hey, I can combine this. And um, that's kind of I felt like this is a place where I need to be. I love to be with the parents and kind of hear their stories, and there the, the whole narrative idea comes right back into it, right? So. My English lit degree comes in handy every time, um, kind of the appreciation of the families and the kids. And um, yeah, so that's kind of how I got there. Okay, so you did you did your studies, you're from Germany, yes. and you studied in Canada. Right, right, Montreal, yeah. Yes, and then went back to, okay, so Christian and that's my husband, we planned on either going to Montreal for our honeymoon or D.C., and we're super nerdy, so we went to D.C. so we could go to all the museums. <laughs> Well, 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 you missed out. No. That's Montreal what my mother is still there. It's still there. You, you got to go. You got to go. It's beautiful. Beautiful place. We'll, we'll go when we're, yeah. That's on the to-do list, but I don't think Canada wants us right now because of yeah, COVID. Yeah, might have to wait a little bit. You might have to wait a little bit. Oh, my stars. We've already detoured so far out yep. of this. This is great. Okay. Okay. So, okay. so you... Okay. You, you became an OT specializing in feeding therapy, but 
How did that lead to you being part of this amazing feeding tube dependency clinic? Um, that's a great question. So when I started working as a feeding therapist, you know, got certified through AOTA and all those things, and I decided to go back to school and get my doctorate. And part of the doctoral program was a residency requirement. And I knew I had read everything about this feeding clinic in Austria and Dr. Dunitz's share and all her work. I'm like, I got to yeah. meet this woman. I got to meet this woman. And yes. I happened to go back to Germany. So I was like, hey, that's convenient. So I sent an email and I went there and I was there for two weeks and I didn't have an OT on the team. And after I was there for two weeks, there's like, well, we need an OT on the team. So and I stayed. <laughs> I stayed. So that's, um, yeah, I'm still, I mean, very active. You know, I work with them. I do all the telehealth pieces. I used to be on the ground in the clinic. So I'm doing two things, but it's, yeah, I just stayed. It's like, yeah, I, I need to be here. This is, this is a wonderful place to be. That is absolutely uh-huh. amazing. See, I sent the email. I literally sent the email and was like, I would love it if I could come. And then we found out I was pregnant. And I mean, I was basically yep. told you'll never get pregnant. So I was like, pursue a career. And then ta-da! <laughs> it turns out St. Patrick's Day is an excellent day. You make my heart happy. Okay. So, so you do this and this is really hard for a lot of people to wrap their brains mm-hmm. around. Yeah. And it was really hard for me to initially wrap my brain around mm-hmm. that there's a possibility to do feeding tube weaning, especially for our kids that have feeding tube dependency. Right. right. Via telehealth. I mean, that yep. seems so surreal. And and then I have families that go to the extreme and then they take on their own um, notions of, well, I'm going to get rid of this tube and then they go to do it themselves. So yeah, we what, see those families what, too. That yeah, I, I bet you do. So, so what does it look like to be part of a feeding tube weaning clinic? And then what does it look like to be a part of that via telehealth? Mm-hmm. So the good thing is, I think that is that you're not alone, right? So as a parent, um, even though it's like virtual, you kind of you walk through a virtual door, and there's a team awaiting you. So there's an assessment, so the medical team looks at it. You have a pediatrician, a medical psychologist, and then either a PT or an OT on your treatment team. And those three people, they are there every single day, twenty four seven. So you have access to them. And that's kind of the beauty because you stay in your home. But we kind of, I always say like, when you decide to go with our program, it's almost like I'm moving in with you for a couple of months, depending how long it takes. So I'm going to be at the table with you virtually. I'm going to be, you know, talking to you on the weekends. You know, we are always, it's like 24 seven, we're always there. And um, we, um, I think we help parents to see that, kind of their strengths too in the process and we guide them in a way that they get encouraged and empowered. So a lot is done via the parents because as you said, telehealth, I can't touch the child, right? So we really rely on the parents and on the therapy team that is local to kind of support that process. And um, it's kind of, it only works as a team. Yes. That's, there's a huge push here in the States for routines based early intervention with emphasis on family coaching, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And it's really hard. It's really hard as a speech path. I mean, we are taught how to do direct therapy. I mean, well, let me rephrase that. Those of us with gray hair were taught how to do um, direct direct service delivery model, right? Like that's what we were taught was best practice. But now we're the data um, the data is showing that by engaging in family coaching and giving the family the power to do this themselves, they have buy in on it, and then they're going to they take it, they run with it. And that has such more positive yes. outcomes. Yes. Yes. 
Yes, and I think I, what 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 we do too is like we walk into a situation where you, you want to have the family at a place where they don't need you anymore. It sounds strange, but you want to really empower them that they can walk the rest of the way on their own, right? And so we also, I mean, and they're so, in families, when we see them, they're so used to getting medical and expert advice and opinion. They're just so like, tell me what to do, tell me what to do. And we're like, well, what are you already doing? Like, what are the routines you already have in place that we can build on? Because it's so much better than creating all those new ones. And, you know, your life also needs to happen still. You know, it's just, yeah, it's a, it's a complicated process, especially when you come from like very hands on and uh, then you can, you know, you have to just, you, you're a guide. And, um, and I think we also empower the children. We, we do work with the kids by now giving them the autonomy. That's very big um, in our program is to really bringing back the child autonomy. And that's uh, another learning process for the parents too, to let that happen. Okay. So like, I have so many questions. Okay. One, um, this is, this, I, you have no idea how much of a fan I have been of this program and this protocol because it, okay, y'all, I can't, how many times have you heard me say that children are not behavioral feeding disorders? This is not what you're dealing with. Two to 3% of PFDs actually have a behavioral feeding disorder component. And, and we, as clinicians don't necessarily hold the skill set. That diagnosis has to come through a clinical psychologist or psychiatrist, right? But for, for these, for these cases, we have to get the child to a point of medical stability and healing. And then once they're there, then we can work with assessing the hunger cues. And from what I've gathered, and please correct me if I'm wrong, from what I've gathered, y'all do not engage in chewy tubes or Z vibes or anything of the sort yeah. because it's non evidence based practice. You actually yeah. do functional therapy. Yeah. yeah. We just say, like, you know what? If you're eating, just use food. So we definitely do take that. Yeah. Use the food. Don't have them chew on rubber. I mean, there's probably people out there. <laughs> I apologize if I'm being too open, but it's just, you know, it's, you know, um, so, and thank you. Thank you. Oh my God. If you were here, I would hug you. I mean, with the mask on and gloves oh, and like a bubble between us. Because, you know, I spend a lot of time, especially at the beginning, you know, because parents come, it's like, where's my exercise program? What am I supposed to do with the things I have at home? I have this whole box here. And I'm like, mm -hmm. um, you know what? Why don't I just put it, Throw it away? In, yeah, get rid of it. I don't know. You know, get rid of it. We don't need it. And then we say, like, oh, those are the foods you can offer, you know, and we, what we do, we, um, we kind of take the cue off the, from the table away, for example, we say, let's go on the floor. We call it play picnic. You know, we get messy. You take your socks off and you just go right in there. You know, you bring your grape and you puree to the floor. And there's no shame about that. You get dirty, perfect. And, um, you know, training, not training, like, like helping parents understand that eating is a complex process, but you also have to have fun. You know, you yes. shouldn't be work. It's hard work by itself to sit up and keep yourself up straight. That's a lot of work. But you got to get the fun back and the parents need to get the fun back. I think that is what we focus on too, is like, how can you play be playful as a caregiver because you've been through, I mean, so much the stories we hear, right? At this point, I mean, again, yeah. it's just, wow. Um, so let's, let's see how we can bring you back to the table or to the floor, you know, as a unit and um, have fun and um, yeah, create some space. You, you, you help them find meal joy at mealtime. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and that's hard. Okay, so my next question is, I have, I struggle here in South Carolina convincing physicians that when a child has met their metabolic and caloric needs via oral and tube, that we really need to critically reassess the volume through the tube such that we can start cutting that down because I, this is the analogy that I give and that I have found that works really well. 
has anyone out there ever gone on a cruise? Dr. Marion, have you ever gone on a cruise? I have not gone on a cruise, okay. but I know people who have. I yes. can totally follow you there. Yes, yes. Okay, so they do this thing on a cruise called the Midnight Buffet, right? And like, mm-hmm. we don't eat at midnight. We're asleep at midnight. But when you're on a cruise, you wake up and you go down to the Midnight Buffet because it's like a big to-do, right? And yeah. you eat like when they tell you to because it's regimented, right? And now I, my mom keeps trying to convince me they have freestyle cruising now. Well, I rephrase that. They had freestyle cruising six months ago. I don't really know if that's still a thing now. But yeah. Um, yeah. And you get, but you eat on like a regimented time. You don't, mm-hmm. you always feel full, right? Yes. And so if you're middle-aged like myself, when you get off the cruise, you then have to take that lovely little pink pill to make you poop again. But like, <laughs> that's truth. Probably before already. You wouldn't wait that long, but. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've been on like two two maybe three cruises in my life and I'm like I don't ever want to do this again and then I get suckered in and it's so much fun again yeah Yeah. I know but um got the pink pill in advance if you're young and you're a CF and you've never heard of the pink pill before wait until child rearing years um but that's what it's like for our children with a feeding tube is that they get every three hours they're constantly refilled or they're on an overnight feed. And I struggle with explaining to physicians, well, I can't ask them to eat more orally if you keep refilling them like from like Uh a tube perspective. So how do I get, how do I have that conversation? How do I educate them on that? That's, that's, I think one of the hardest things, right? I think getting them in the boat and saying like, so this kid, I mean, there are kids who have a tube because it's a medical necessity. They're not, I mean, we're not talking about those children, right? I mean, they, if they know they have to be in a tube, that's, but other ones, you know, when you see that they're progressing and they've met everything and, um, but the oral motor skills are there, everything is working, they're ready, but you can't, I mean, it's like if you get, if you already had a big dessert and you have another one, you just can't. And they lose the sense of their own like self-regulation of their appetite. Mm-hmm. Everything is on the clock. And so the weight is artificial. So a lot of times I hear like, but they're gaining weight, but, and I was like, but it's artificial. It's not their, their normal weight because it's all pushed through the two. And um, you want them, I mean, the goal should be to be off it, right? Yes. So second, the situation is under control. The kid is medically stable. And uh, we always say the earlier, the better. The second, the physician says you know medically stable not medically indicated anymore let's bring him back to a typical feeding let's bring him back to the family i what i sometimes say is like do you know what it's like for a family to have a child with a feeding tube how it impacts the family unit how it impacts um the caregiver's reality you know like family meals going out to a restaurant meeting family playing with other kids meals in the, at school you know so that's mm-hmm. all impacted and um sometimes i get him over that kind of with that narrative to say like you know you, you really look at the reality and look at the research i'm like i can show you the research of what it looks like um when a kid has a feeding tube and how it impacts the family mealtime routine actually i did a research on that topic so Wait, it's where, like, yeah. where can we read it where is it <laughs> Uh, it's in the Australian Journal of Occupational Therapy, and uh, 2018. So uh, yeah, it is. It's there, and it looks at the impact of feeding tubes on family mealtime routine, and it shows very clearly is that you know we need this is this is a problem. I can't leave my house. Help me. I just had an idea, and I need to connect you to a friend because I've got an idea for our university clinic. I just I just became clinic coordinator at a speech pathology oh. program here in South Carolina. Oh, and thank you. I don't know what I'm doing. It's terrifyingly cool, <laughs> but like I have. Don't you love that when you get to that point, and it's like I get to do this? <laughs> do we. Um, we, and not to toot our own horn, but our little bitty Francis Marion University is setting up the very first pediatric feeding clinic on a university oh, campus in South Carolina history. Fantastic. I know, but I have an wow. idea for a research project and I need to connect you to a friend to see if we can make that happen. So yeah, I'm there. I love yes. research. Yeah. You know. Okay. So you, you, you mentioned a key word. You said medical stability. 
Uh-huh. And that's where, y'all, we get kiddos that need feeding tubes for a litany of reasons. Um, I'm, right. I'm thinking of one sweet baby girl that I've worked with for the last year. Um, she has uh, uh, she has DeGeorge's 22Q11.2, um, uh-huh. uh, also known as belocardiofacial syndrome. So she had tritalogy, a fillet, a VSD. Um, she's had all of these cardiac conditions. Also, for lack of a better phrase, she was born without a functioning swallow reflex. And so the first three years of her life, she was a hundred percent tube fed and she slowly started engaging in taste. And then a year ago I came on board and, um, cause one of my girlfriends asked me to come help with the case and I came on board and we had to, First, get her gut to a point that it would accept um, actual food and not synthetic formula, but like, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have to prepare the gut. Yeah, sure. Yes, yes. And so what has progressed over the last year is this really cool process where once we found a plant-based food, actual blenderized tube feed that worked for her, she started getting hungry. Excellent. But she also has had her final um, cardiac procedure. She's being monitored for one more. And so she's hit medical stability and we're starting to cut back on her formula feeds. But my question is, what is the medical stability protocol look like? Like what makes a person a candidate for a feeding tube dependency wean? What is it called? Am I calling it the right thing? Feeding tube dependency wean? What's the word? We said tube weaning, and then you can, I mean, everybody who comes through a door has a tube dependency, right? I mean, it doesn't take very long to develop it. The family has it, the child has it, the grandmother has it, depending on whoever who is working with that kid or is close proximity. So um, it's always decided, so we have a medical team, right? So our pediatrician, and we are, as part of the assessment, so we are asking for letters from physicians, the last gastroenterology visit. So we want physicians to be on board and uh, we closely monitor it. And that's the thing because the, the pediatrician looks into, we call the ticket, it's like an online, uh, it's not a blog or a chat, it's like an online platform where families communicate with us daily. Um, and she's there. Right. And so she's always like in contact with the physician that's local. So stable means like uh, we're looking at to like what kind of medication is the kid getting? You know, we have a lot of kids uh, with nef- uh, kidney um, issues or heart defects. So we, yeah, nephrology. Exactly. So we get all those kids and we really monitor them closely. So stability is really looking at we're going to do a little bit of reduction. How do we respond? So since we are there 24-7, there in quotation mark, but we are in communication, we can do that. So that's kind of the first the first step in looking at medical stability. And if the doctor says, you know, this child still has three, four surgeries coming up, we might say, you know, let's start with taste, but let's start the wean after the surgeries are done and the kid is more stable and can really focus on eating because you also need to be in the right state to do it yes okay so when y'all do the wean Uh is it seriously like you have it for like three days or like have the tube feeds for a week is that how that works because that's so cool Uh so it's um so it's a let me see how to best explain it because we do it all the time and like how am i going to explain this so (laughs) every it's like i don't know so the parents have a they kind of have to do a protocol, like they write down what, what they're offering, what the child is tasting, what the child is taking. And then daily, we might do a daily adjusted to wean. We might do uh, the tube uh, protocol or we might do it weekly, depending on what the kid is giving us. Mm-hmm. So it's very much child-led. Nice. So when somebody asks me, like, so what is the protocol? Like every week something new or every five days? I'm like, I can't tell you because it depends on your child. And as you know, if you push a child too fast, they're going to, they're going to resist. They're going to like, no way. I'm not going to do it. So it's, and we monitor the weight for sure. And we monitor the comfort level of the caregiver. So there's a lot of components that the team members daily evaluate. So this it's kind of a daily process. You you kind of, you never know what's going to happen, what the kid's going to give us to okay. work with. Yeah. 
So you mentioned some of the professionals that are part of the team mm-hmm. that y'all have within your team. You have the physician, the um, occupational pediatrician, yep, um, occupational therapist, physical therapist. You never said speech therapist. We have a speech therapist, but he works only in the clinic on the ground. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so not for the telehealth component. Wait, mm-hmm. it's a guy? It's a male speech therapist? Yes. yes. Oh, I love this even more. <laughs> There's so yeah. few of them. It's delightful. Yeah. No, they do exist. <laughs> but they are also very few in Germany, so. <laughs> Sweet. Okay. Um, yeah, and, and we have a nutritionist, too. So a nutritionist is also that's on call and gets pulled in when need, when the need is there. So we have those as well. Okay. So you also mentioned that you work with the, the local community team. Mm -hmm. So how, how do do you do like a peer to peer, like the PT picks up the phone and talks with the PT or the, how does that work? So we believe in transparency. So everything kind of goes to the same platform that the parent or the caregiver is communicating with us. Oh, I so the, love ther- the therapist will log on to, will get access to although the family has to allow it. We don't do nothing behind the family's back. So they know exactly who we're communicating with. It's very transparent. So even the therapist, the therapist conversation, the, par- the caregiver can read it. Um, sometimes we had... Um, some speech language pathologist, you know, she's like, you know, I do a lot of this. What do you think? Should I stop? Should I shift it? What is your philosophy? And we work well with them. So, and then she would upload a video so I can see the session. I would say, you know, maybe do a little bit back a little up, back up a little bit. You know, you're offering too much, make it more child autonomy, give the kid more control. And that works well. And again, the caregiver can see everything. It's transparent. So all the communication. And I can see what the pediatrician communicates with um, the the caregiver. Everything is transparent. So nothing is um, kind of behind closed doors. I love this. Okay. So there's Feeding Matters is like how we met, right? And I'm a huge proponent of Feeding Matters because, y'all, I know I've told you before to go out and volunteer with Feeding Matters, but this is why. It's a family caregiver-driven program. There are other pediatric feeding disorder organizations, but they do not allow caregivers and family members to be part of the organization, which is a appalling for lack of a better phrase Uh yes Uh because we are supposed to use evidence-based practice which is gauge it's parent coaching parent engagement drives everything and so i y'all feeding matters is doing it right also wait did you see that they just got the um pfd icd 10 code or icd exciting! oh my gosh I know that is that was a battle. So I'm so excited. I can I cannot wait for we actually use it. You know? Yes. <laughs> next, I think it's October. I think we get to use it next month. And I'm gonna like I cannot wait. I'm gonna be the the nerdy SLP that like updates all of her reports to get the correct ICD-10 code oh, on there. <laughs> so important. It's so and yes. it just it really reflects it so much better, you know. Mm-hmm. And and I really hope that there's more coverage out there. So yes. Yes, this course, is we all uh, yeah. Okay, so, all right. So, did we cover all of the professionals? Wait, I did have a question. Psychology. What about psychology? Yeah. How does oh, yeah. that play so, in? Mm-hmm. Because, well, if you think about it, too, is the parents come in, they might have trauma. They've been through, I mean, they've been through everything. So, the psychologist works really closely into empowering the parents and the, the psychologists, they're amazing. Like they can observe a feeding situation and they know exactly this is the cue to child's giving. How are you responding? They give lots of uh, feedback, positive feedback. They give security. Um, and it's their sounding board for families, for caregivers. So it's just really an integral part. I think what the beauty is of this feeding team and NoTube is that you can't you have to use all. You have to have all those components to make it work, um, mm-hmm. because we work so hand in hand. And um, so, yeah, that's, that's you have to have them. <laughs> yeah, we um, 
Uh, I had Dr. Rob Dempster from mm -hmm. um, a major children's hospital on, and he was talking to us about uh, how he engages in engages families in working through their trauma to help with yeah. the children. And that's something that I have seen, especially over the last six months is not only caregiver burnout, but clinician mm -hmm. burnout. Because we're, yes. we're all stressed and stretched to the max. Right. Exactly. Uh -huh. And uh -huh. so when you're engaging with a family I humbly suggest if you hit a point in your therapeutic journey with the child or with their family and you start having, I'm trying to find the right word here, um, antagonistic views okay. or you find yourself dreading going to that session, then you need, you need to walk away because yes. your therapeutic presence and whatever you have going on in your own world is going to inhibit the potential outcomes for that child and for the rest of that clinical team. And yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you can, as part of that team, you yourself can talk to the psychologist and say, mm -hmm. Hey, I've got this baggage. The family's told me these things, or I'm observing these action objects, actions. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, and that's the same for us too. Even though, like, I'm in the US and they're in Graz, Austria, you know, we have our supervision meetings. You know, we can, I can say, you know, this family, like, what's going on? Am I, I'm having these feelings? What's happening? And they can, I mean, since all it's transparent, right? So the, the psychologist who's on the team with me can say, like, you know, I don't know what's going on. Maybe let me take over for a couple of days and let me see what's, you know, and then you come back in. So, and I mean, you're human, right? When you have that, you have to be aware of that because you're thinking about the therapeutic use of self. You know, you bring always yourself into the therapy session to you use what who you are um, to build rapport with the families to do all that. And if that's no longer working for you, really gotta you gotta look inward and figure out what's going on and ask for that help and support. Mm -hmm. Did you know I have never taken a class as a speech pathologist where they talk about therapeutic use of self? I have only picked that what? up. I never covered. <laughs> Honest to God, never covered. I know it's therapeutic. Huge. It's huge, but therapeutic presence and therapeutic use of self uh -huh. is the. Um, <laughs> One of my girlfriends was like, Michelle, you're a clean, dirty hippie. How have you never heard of this? And I was like, I don't know. It's never oh. been in my language. But OTs know about that. So can yes. you can you talk to us ever so briefly about what do you explain therapeutic use of self and therapeutic presence? Can you explain? Mm -hmm. yeah. It's, um, yeah, I always, I always see it as you go kind of on eye level with the people you're working with, right? So you're coming in and I have my history and my narrative and my experience. And I pull from that just to, just a little bit to build that alliance. You know, I can say, um, even if it's just another experience and I had somebody who, for example, happens to be from a similar background and I was from, I grew up in East Germany, for example. So we connected wow. that way. So it's like, oh, I didn't know. And then you build that rapport. Or, you know, I have a daughter who was a really picky eater. So I can, I can go with you on that level, right? So, and that's important because you don't come in as, an, as the expert up there. Because if you bring in yourself, you, the person that you're working with, your caregiver, the person across from you or next to you, will bring their self in. And together you have the unit that you can work from. And, but you, you have to have this. And it's a, I think it's the most powerful tool in your toolbox, honestly. Yes. Yeah. I have found that when, you know how when you're having an off day? Yeah. It's, and we're all entitled to having off days. Absolutely. It's part when, of who you are. Yes. Yep. But when you come into a session, you have to conscientiously, I view it like taking off a jacket. Like if I uh -huh. have stress on me before I physically walk into that room or turn on the camera for a Zoom session, I have to like take all of that off. Yes. Because otherwise my, um, my negative energy will uh -huh. inhibit my ability to 
reach out and engage on the level that I need to. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that's the same same process. I mean, it goes through even like what language you use, you know, all those things to really build that. And I would say, I keep saying rapport, but it's like this relationship, right? You're you're building this relationship because you wanna you wanna be kind of you wanna be part of this, and especially if you do telehealth, that's really important because half of your body is cut off, you know. If you just feel like I'm like. Man, I have only this, and I, I talk with my hands all the time. Yes. And if I do that, the camera's gonna freeze. So I've been like, be careful with my hands. Uh, <laughs> and it's just you have to use other other ways to build that rapport, that connection. And you know, when we work with the parents, it is not video interaction; it's all written. Um, so you have to bring even more. Like, how do you do therapeutic use of self in only written format? So that's that's that. That's, I that's, I don't know if I could do that. I got to be honest. I don't, um, it's, it's practice. It's practice. And spell sure. check. I'm a terrible speller, so I hope to God yeah. whatever program you use has a spell check. <laughs> it does. It does have a spell check. But it's just the thing, you know, like remembering when they say that, oh, we're going to go, we, we try to go out to a restaurant and you're like, okay, so now it's been three days since they said that. I might check in on that. So that's how you build it too. It's like, so how was your restaurant visit, by the way, last week? And they're like, how do you remember? So those kinds of things, um, you know, and just be a little human. Be human. Yes. I think that's important. Yeah. I, I, I like to, the humor part of the human is what makes me the yes. happiest. Yes. Yeah, I have, yes, I have that too. And sometimes, you know, you, you ask for videos and, I had one video. It was so great. So the kid played with the food and touched it off for the first time. It was awesome. It was so excited. I was like, what's different? And then the camera angle shifted a little bit. Well, the little dachshund was sitting next to the feet. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the kid happily. So you kept seeing the little dog jumping in the background, you know, catching all the things. But it was hilarious. And so I just said, you know, this is, and I just, wrote a little message to the dog and I said just thank you you know and maybe and put in your request for the meal next time have a little bit less sausage so maybe a little bit more <laughs> stuff. so it's and you make that humor it's you've got to you've got to you got to life too serious you know yeah. Okay. All right. This is, we, we had family game night as a family and we, my boys got this terrible game where you put water, it's a little toilet, right? And it has a roll of like toilet yeah. paper and you, and you spin it and then you pretend to flush the toilet and it randomly squirts water at you. Well, oh, it's God. the world's worst game invented and my boys love it. So we're laying on the, um, living room floor taking turns getting shot in the face our big german shepherd black chow we call him chewbacca chewbacca walks right over bowls between us and proceeds to drink the water out of the toy (laughs) toilet and i was like (laughs) yep yep i have seen dogs walking through the play picnic (laughs) and having a little lick of that puree but you know and then you know what what happens the kid does it yeah, the kid does it, goes yeah. on the tummy and licks it, and parents are laughing. <laughs> and when you hear, and I said that's the beauty of this work, when you hear the laughter, yes. from the, that is like, oh my gosh, you can pay me to do it. This is amazing. This yeah. is why we're doing this, because that moment is precious. Yes. Precious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's um, Dr. K. Toomey with the SOS yeah. approach. She... She said something profound. She was like, therapy has to be positive. She was like, we have to tiptoe into the water. You don't teach a kid to swim by throwing them in the pool. And I was like, honestly, I I was thrown in a pool, but like, you know, country backwoods learning style. But for the children that we're working with, you tiptoe in, it has to be a positive. So Uh please critically look at your sessions, y'all. If you find that your session is negative to neutral, then you need to take a break and find out what's going, where's the process improvement plan. It needs to be positive to neutral. Our sessions cannot be neutral to negative. Um, and I feel, I feel real strongly in that. Okay. So, um, the reality of tube feeding in okay. social context, you just talked about how um, family mealtime routines and you wanted to go out to dinner, but, and you told us that this research article is in the, is it the Australian journal? Australian. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Exactly. Yes. Okay. And uh, 
yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. I was going to say, so tell us all about this. <laughs> no, so it's like this interesting fact because I saw, you know, I so you see your, your family from the clinic and I was like, okay, well, they're all saying, yeah, we're going to eat together. We're planning all this thing. And it's like, well, are you actually doing it? And it's like, no. So what's the breakdown? What's happening in the home, right? So what happens when you take all the advice you get and you take it into the home and nothing? They're like, we have a broken dinner schedule. You know, our table is not really good. So they had to get a different table. They put hooks in the wall to hang the feeding bag on. Mm-hmm. Um, there were, yeah, so they were very, in, you know, they were they trying to figure it out, but they could not eat together because the feeding schedule didn't match up with the family um, eating schedule. Mm-hmm. So it was totally off. And then the kid didn't know what to do. And uh, But what they said, a lot of them said was that um, when we first got the feeding tube and um, we really needed some more time to find out kind of get the idea this is our new normal some time to adjust so very quickly they were thrown into do this to this to this to this to this follow all those advices and caregivers said like that was way too fast so i need some time to adjust i want somebody who problem solves with me how to bring how to integrate this into the into the family and that being said the families i interviewed were families where the feeding tube is going to be a definite component of their child's life. Those are children with a diagnosis of cerebral palsy to an extent where we knew that there is no weaning possibility. But I still wanted to see, okay, what can we do to enhance family mealtime, family unit? And um, yeah, so that's lots of problem solving. And that's an advocacy. Yes. They're to do like the therapists who come into the home. They're a great advocates knowing where to turn to help us to negotiate stepping outside of our protective walls of the home and you know go to the restaurant you know have a family meal outside with other family members or friends and kind of recreating kind of getting those routines back that you had before the child got a feeding tube so there's a lot of work that still needs to be done i think to help those families take that step well i I'm I'm trying to compose my thoughts. I feel very strongly that we need to engage in quality of life considerations for our little ones that are always going to be feeding tube dependent. And so I, I have, um, I treat the least of these. So in my neck of the woods, if, if you need me as your therapist, you don't necessarily want me as your therapist because that means that you have all the things, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and um and for a long time it you know, it it's it's hard on a heart until you realize that like this is what you're you're I've been called to do and I love it. So when you have cases like that that are will require feeding tubes for the rest of their lives. You really need to talk with the physician and make sure that within your documentation, you're discussing quality of life, pleasure feeding. And there is a role for that in the pediatric realm. That's a hard component to process, especially when most people view quality of life, like palliative care measures is like an adult geriatrics component. But that's some of these babies that we see babies toddlers children um especially ones that have cancer or have rare genetic conditions they need our support even more so that they can have a happy meal time yeah absolutely and something that we try to with in our clinic in austria is like we have kids for example that come into a program that might just be partially weaned um so yeah absolutely absolutely so for example it's like you know i would love to just be on night feeds how can we figure this out that we can have a day meal schedule that we can all eat together and just supplement or you know those kinds of things so yes yes that's also an option because for some kids they might they just might always have to have the two but let's optimize it right let's use it to its best ability so that we still have the quality of life piece in there because those kiddos they they 
they're not living in a vacuum, right? They have all the people around them. So we need to make sure that that is also taken into consideration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. I, yeah. I have one little mommy. Um, <laughs> she's, it just made, it made me giggle. Like the little guy that I work with, he has a GJ tube. He has a trach. We have all the things. And we yeah. worked up to the point now where she can, I mean, when I first started with him, I couldn't even, I had, to, I was the first therapist that could sit at the table adjacent to, and by adjacent to, we're still talking like five feet away to his yeah. hospital bed in his living room. And, and the mommy told me, um, this past week that she's like, I can wipe food on his lips and he mm-hmm. curls his little lips in and licks it off. And then, and it's. That moment is huge. I mean, he yeah. will not bring his own hands to his mouth, which is why we, he won't, I mean, autonomy, I understand, but like he just right. cannot, right? Right, but, right, exactly. Yeah. But I mean, to go from where we were to where he is now, like, yes, he will always have that. But that means when she's cooking, she can put whatever she's prepared and yeah. her little like fancy blender. And then, uh-huh. you know, he can, or she can dip her finger in the sauce and then- uh-huh he's partaking of that. And that's just like, yay. But but if you think about how much is feeding part of your identity, right? I mean, you have this imagination, I'm going to cook and that's, and that's socially sanctioned, right? You get feedback from society how well you feed your children, you know? And <laughs> yeah, or you get shame, dude. Exactly. <laughs> but people have opinions and they don't shy away of telling those opinions. But so, you know, just providing that piece of identity back to the parent, that's amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, if it's just, and I'm saying if, and I shouldn't say if, it's, you know, tastes on the mouth. You know, being able to, sometimes it's just being able to tolerate the smell of food so you can sit with the family at mm-hmm. the table, right? Or, mm-hmm. um, you know, having, yeah, tastes or whatever it may be. Or, you know, some kids, are, they're just going to drink. They're not going to chew. That's just what, what how they take their, that they take, right? Yes. But it's there, but they can take their drink at the table with everybody else. So that's just. And that's huge. So we think we need to kind of keep that in mind too, like this whole identity piece of who those people are. So, yeah. So, um, you, you, I don't think you know this, but I have a special needs brother-in-law. And oh, I did not know that. Yes. Um, Uncle Matthew Monster. And um, <laughs> Uncle Matthew Monster is my joyful hot mess. Um, Uncle Matthew Monster has autism, CP, microcephaly, a cortical vision impairment. And oh, yeah, he, yeah. yep. And so, um, also it's, um, if memory serves correct, I believe that this is cortical vision impairment awareness month. So, Oh, it is. Yes. Ooh, yeah. I have, yeah. I'm right. trained to work. Yeah. I, I love working with that population. So yes. mm-hmm. that's, yeah. that's, that's our uncle Matthew, Great. but his awesome. function fed is fed is fed is fed. And so mm-hmm. uncle Matthew, when he goes to chew, he open mouth chews and like, you can see yep. it, right. But he can't close lip because he has hypertrophy of his adenoids and he has to breathe um, through his mouth. Right. Right. So, makes sense. Um, yes, exactly. So folks, when we're looking at safest, least restrictive diet, it may not be what we would consider historically socially acceptable at mealtime to chew with one's mouth open right mm-hmm. but are they safely least restrictively getting nourishment and is the family enjoying themselves if you have checked those boxes then walk away and give grace that absolutely that's, that's uh, a hard of- sell but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's the idea of participation, right? I mean, we as OTs, I'm sure you as SLPs do the same thing. You want them to participate. You want yes. them to be part, partake in the social event. Yes. And you know, and you have to step away from this like mouth closed. They have to eat this food at that time. And like, you know what? They're here. They're participating. They're enjoying themselves. Win, great, win, win. I'm happy. Yes. Fabulous. Move on. I <laughs> I had one kid that her favorite drink was spicy V8 juice and oh, um, yes. the, 
and she wanted to drink that for like breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And the mom started laughing. And I was like, what's so funny? She goes, I'm just telling you that in like 20 years when we're going out for Bloody Marys, she uh-huh. is going to thrive. I was like, I can't. I just, I you bring actually an interesting point because a lot of kids when they're weaning off the feeding tube, I don't know if you've seen this too, they tend toward like really like intense flavors. I so, have a theory. I have a theory on that. Yeah, yes, yeah. sorry, go continue and then I'll word vomit my theory. Yeah, probably <laughs> <laughs> so that you know we have kids it's like ranch dressing that's the first thing they'll taste and they'll take in and they're just like give me the flavor give me like pickle juice and it was like wow and they're like what and like no this is like their senses are waking up yeah so it's yeah absolutely and but it, again it's like this notion of what is typical right so what is typical mm-hmm. food um, what is typical baby or stages food? It's like ranch dressing. If that's what they're taking, I am very happy. We're starting. We're starting because that was the hardest thing is to get it from the table to the mouth. We're starting. We've got this. We, we can go from places from here. So yeah. So what's your theory? Bring it on. Okay. All right. So this is great. Have you ever read the book Gulp? It's. Um, I have not. Oh my God. It's 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 amazing. So it's Gulp. Well, it's, um, it's written by Mary Roach. It has, um, it's absolutely scientific based, but she definitely has an adult sense of humor. So just FYI. (laughs) Um, And I read that and then I countered that with like all of the other research that I've read, right? So Uh here's my theory. We develop the sense of flavor, sweet, salt, sour, bitter, umami, and it comes in that stage, right? But it's not actually our taste buds on our tongues that change. It's the olfactory gustatory um, uh, cortexes in our brains that evolve and mature, right? Correct. And then we lose them in reverse unless we have had a neuroatypical component. Oh, yeah. yeah, And so my, and and another factor is that our older receptors and, um, uh, in our nasopharynx, if you have a child um, that has enlarged adenoids or enlarged palatine tonsils, they become obligatory mouth breathers. But okay. you have 350 to, I think it was 400 is what they said in that book, um, odor receptors in your around your um, adenoids in your nasopharynx. So if those are blocked or the air particulates cannot get to them because, you know, you're mouth breathing and you're not actually okay. bringing th- like retronasal olfaction, then that will impede your sense of taste. And it's not your tongue. It's the other components. And what I have found is that a lot of my babies that have tube feeds are neuroatypical. So their cortical structures are different. So in my head, it makes sense that they're, respiratory cycle is different their cortical structures are different it makes sense that they want all those strong flavors yes right? yeah it's, i can it's, go there totally that's, that's my weird theory <laughs> sounds very evident though i mean i can hear yeah, it yeah. It's, yes well, it's, you know but yeah it makes sense it and it's really across the board you will ha- i have yet to see one that takes just the bland give me the bland i'm like no there it's it, there needs to be some, some kind of kick in there, some kind of thing that kind of gets them going. And yeah, it might just be that uh, ranch dressing or that spicy VA juice. Yeah, that's, I mean, you know, hey, I got, I got a kid who would not eat a hot cheese sandwich, which was literally grilled cheese, by the way, but he called it a hot yeah. cheese sandwich, but he will have smoked salmon with capers on Sunday morning with us. And I'm like, we're the weirdest child in the world. <laughs> but I and I think what's interesting is too, is like, sometimes like, you know, those kids, um, they identify themselves through their what they're eating, right? And mm-hmm. so when you have you have older kids too, been feeding tube for a very very long time, and then they are so hooked. It's like this is like they're dependent on their feeding tube, but also with their identity. And it's that that they get scared sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so we have to give them a different identity, a different piece, because they think 
I'm only special because I have this special mm. thing in my belly. They have the two, right? And we have a kid who says, well, I am hungry, feed my belly mouth. And he really pointed to us that that was his mouth, was his belly, his mm. two. So we worked on trying to find a different identity for him, you know, and his mm. was eating weird foods. <laughs> That's yeah. I'm like, hey, that's perfect. Uh, Bring on the papers and the salmon. You know, he was, yep, yeah, I'll take it. Wait, but what yeah, is- he mind. <laughs> yes, there's, there's a guy that travels the world. He's a short, round, bald man. And I cannot remember his name. And he travels the world and eats weird food. You eat, y'all should watch mm-hmm. that show. What is, who is that? He's a chef. I can't remember. It's, oh. Um, I can't remember it either. But I know who you're talking about. I know. Yeah, he- but that the, and, <laughs> go ahead, but, I'm sorry. you know it's this idea and this is like yeah just give him a new identity and he totally is like yeah that's who i am and then he started like putting things cooking like cooking for his family and combining weird things because that's what he liked and he made the transition you know he's done no more feeding tube and he was okay at a party you know and everything the feeding tube was gone gone and at a goodbye party and a celebration and Welcome to his new self, um, the person who eats weird stuff, but eating. <laughs> okay. He, I, I, I did the Google. It's Bizarre Foods with Andrew Zimmerman, yeah. and he yes. needs to see that guy. Food. That would yeah. be, yes, yes. Oh, my gosh. That's, oh, that he makes me so that guy. Yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was fabulous to see. And the parents totally embraced that new role. I mean, they absolutely went on that train with him. You know, that was like no discussion was great it's really great to see mm-hmm. but see that's what we do and it makes i can hear the joy you have to come back can we do a part two this has been <laughs> my face hurts from smiling this is so much fun <laughs> okay wait we we do have to get okay we we have to yeah. talk ever so briefly y'all sure. you can reach out to dr marion her your website it's no tube.com Correct. Absolutely. Yep. Okay. And you. Yep. And is it covered by insurance? Because I know that will be the next worry. That will be the next worry. So we're working on that um, because the company is based in Austria. So you know, whenever you go treatment outside of the country, you get you run into that issue. Um, we had one com- one insurance company who's covered us um, for the net coaching. That's our online program. Mm-hmm. But we're working on that. So a lot of families do it through fundraising. Um, that's just and. The cost is cheaper if you compare it to going inpatient, things like that. Yeah. So there is the cost comparison. Um, and we'll, we'll give you all the letters you need to submit to insurance. We have all the codes. So we definitely and we'll help you. Um, we, we advocate for you. And um, so that's, but we're still in the process. You know, there's so many insurance companies in this country. So it's, yes, it's really it's, hard. It's really hard. But yeah, we are aware of it and we're, we're there to support you um, with letters. Feeding Matters does have scholarships to help offset the cost. And um, Erin Forward, my co-host, because um, she, her and I do every fourth episode together, Erin and uh, one of the lovely ladies that she works with just founded Forward, is it Millick Forward or Forward Millick Foundation? And oh. they specifically, it's a foundation specifically for holistic PFD evaluation and treatment. Awesome. And so That's great to know. That I know. And so um, I think that they had already raised like twenty or $30,000 um, and, and it will go towards helping families offset the cost for holistic evaluations and treatments. Um, so y'all just, you know, check it out. Cause that's, I'm, I'm also, she was my former student. Erin was my student like years ago and I'm just so proud of her. I'm like, phenomenal. I, isn't yeah. it great when they grow up and they're like, doing life and just giving to the world yes 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 yeah mentors mentors are amazing I mean I wouldn't be here without my incredible mentor that I had for feeding so you know that those those people are you need those in your life yeah yes Yes. Uh, I'm going to cry now. Dadgummit. Okay. All right. So, um, yeah, thank you. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. So um, I try really hard not to cry in these episodes, but like I'd say every third one I do. Now, if, if so, if someone wants to reach you, it's best to go to notube.com. 
Yeah. And uh, you can see, like, I'm under, um, I think, team. And what will happen, too, is that we offer a free evaluation. So there's a link in the corner. You click on it, and you'll meet with um, our lovely Eva Kashishnik. And uh, she does all the free evaluations. And you have a conversation about the program. If you want to talk to me, my email is on there. It's just Marion Russell, marion.russell at notube.com. Pretty straightforward. <laughs> Make sure you say no tube and don't put an S on there because if you put yes. an S on there, it takes you to a tire company. <laughs> yes. yes, exactly. Yep. Yes. So, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, yeah, you can find me there for sure. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, I welcome emails anytime you know. It's just, I love to hear from people. Excellent. Okay. All right. Well, then let me switch this over to questions. Hold on one second. Okay. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies.